Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a desk. Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. Playing the role of Ethan is Scott Harrison. Playing the role of Grace is Deb Meeks. Playing the role of Moira is Kim Howard. Lights up on a kitchen. The time is noon. Grace is sitting in her kitchen, wearing a bathrobe. Ethan enters, carrying a few bags of groceries. Mother, how many times have I told you never to open the door without asking who it is? I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot. What if I had been a burglar or a rapist? Well, I don't know. And what are you doing out of your wheelchair? But, well, I... Uh... I don't want any excuses. Get in this chair. I pay perfectly good money to rent you this chair. And what do you do? Go gallivanting all around the house. Well, I wasn't gallivanting. I was just walking. <laughs> That's all we need. A broken hip. Old people die from broken hips, you know? What would we do then? I'm sorry. Ethan tucks a blanket around her lap and her lower legs. There. Oh, I don't need a blanket. Don't argue with me, Mother. There's a draft in here. Don't you feel it? Uh, no, no, not, not really. I don't want you getting a chill. There. Now, I brought you some soup for lunch and a few groceries. I'm going to put them in your refrigerator. Ethan goes to the refrigerator with one of the bags. While he is distracted putting groceries in the refrigerator, Grace pulls the blanket off of her and tosses it in the floor. Ethan finds something that does not please him. Oh, mother. Mother? Mother! What? What is this? Your guess is as good as mine. It's split pea soup. Well, if you knew, dear, then why did you ask me? It hasn't been touched. Mother... Why haven't you eaten the split pea soup I made for you yesterday? I did. You certainly did not. Well, I remember eating it. Then what am I holding in my hand? But didn't you say it, it was split pea soup? This is the split pea soup I brought you yesterday. You couldn't possibly have eaten it if I am holding it in my hand. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Why didn't you eat it? No, oh, I hate split pea soup. No, you don't. Well, I think I know what I like and, and don't like. I made this from scratch. From your recipe. You made this all the time when I was growing up. Oh. Oh, look. I don't remember that. Fine. No more split pea soup. Oh, good. I hate the stuff. I'm not going to argue with you. Now, what have you done with your blanket? 
You're going to argue, aren't you? You need your blanket. Ethan puts the now hot new soup into a cup for his mother and brings it to her. Oh, it's too hot. You'll be the one with pneumonia then, not me. Old people die of pneumonia, you know? That's all I need, you with pneumonia. What would happen then? I die? Oh, don't say that, Mother. Don't ever say that. Take it back. Quick, take it back. Calm down, calm down, calm down. I was joking with you. Please, don't ever joke about something like that. Ethan runs to Grace, falling to his knees next to her wheelchair. Okay. Please don't die, Mommy. I don't know what I'd do without you. Promise me. But now you know I can't promise. Promise me, Mommy. Pretty please. Oh, all right. If it will make you feel better. Thank you. I almost forgot. I have a surprise for you. Look, Mother, I brought you something. I hope it's not that awful split pea soup. Ethan removes an old photo album from the bag. No, Mother, I brought you some old pictures. Yuck. Well, what do I want with old pictures? The doctor says that looking at these may help your memory. Well, there's nothing wrong with my memory. If you say so, Mother. I do say so. Look at this photograph. Do you know when this was taken? Don't you know? I know. I want to find out if you remember. Um, um, the beach? That's right. Very good. The beach. Now, do you know where the beach is? Um, Florida? No, Mother, not Florida. You've never been to Florida in your whole life. Uh, Sure. Look again. Uh, Maine? It's New Jersey, Mother. New Jersey. New Jersey! (laughs) Remember all the summer vacations to the Jersey Shore? Oh, of, of course. Of course. New Jersey. Okay. Then look at this lady here. Oh, so pretty. Yes. And who do you think that pretty lady is? Me? That's right, it's you! Oh, I'm the pretty lady! Yes! Look at all these children. Oh, so many! And which one is me? You? Yes. Which one is your little boy, Ethan? Um... Ah! This one? We need to have your eyes checked. That's Cousin Louise. Are you sure? Yes, I am sure. She has big, uh, big, uh, (laughs) you knows. Who knows? (laughs) Mother, don't say that. Say, I don't know. Kids. Which little boy in the picture is me? Um, this one. 
Are you kidding? That's stupid cousin Skippy. Oh, he doesn't look stupid. This one is me, mother. This one. If it helps, that was my next guess. Look, it's me, mother. Your son, Ethan, when I was a little boy. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know. <sighs> it's okay, mother. Uh, here we are, the morning I left for the state high school debate championships. Do you mm. remember what you did that morning? Um, I... I hugged and kissed you? Yes, and? And, um, and I... I wished you good luck? Yes, and? And... And, um... I don't remember. You took off your wedding ring and slipped it on my little finger and said, Here, now a piece of me will be with you. Oh, and you won the championship! No, Mother. I lost. Oh. Oh. Mother, where is your wedding band? I don't know. You lost it. Um, I, I suppose. Well, you better look around here and find it. I have to get back to work. We'll look for it tomorrow, okay? Look for what? Never mind. I love you. <laughs> yes. Keep looking at these photographs to jog your memory. Oh, uh, I will. And look for your wedding band. I promise. I promise. And remember, ask who it is before you open the door. Mother? Mother! What? What are you going to do before you open the door? <sighs> ask who it is. Yes. Very good, Mother. See you tomorrow at noon, sharp. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, oh, oh, um, uh, Ethan, is that you? It's Moira! <laughs> Come on in, Moira. Grace stands as Moria enters. She is Grace's age and is dressed for a bowling tournament. You ready? Almost. Grace folds the blanket as Moria looks around the kitchen. What? No coffee? Oh, sorry. We can stop at Stardust's on our way. It's Starbucks, Grace. Sometimes I think you've got the old-timers disease. <laughs> it's old-timers, Moira. Now who's senile? Moira notices the evidence that Ethan has been there. Grace? What? Please tell me you didn't let that crazy man in here again. Well, um... Grace removes her bathrobe to reveal that she, too, is dressed for bowling. Grace? 
Oh, Ethan is harmless. Ethan is crazy. Well, how can you say that? The man thinks you are his deaf, demented, dead. Did I mention dead mother? So? Grace retrieves her bowling bag from the closet, removes the ball, and begins polishing it. Why do you let him in your house? Well, Douglas and I were never blessed with children. Charlie and I had nine kids. I wouldn't use the word blessed. Well, you know... You know how empty the house feels when your husband dies and you're all alone. That I do. Well, it's nice to have some company and, well... And what, Grace? Ethan is... he's like the child Douglas and I never had. It's sweet. It's twisted. He must miss his mother very much. You ask me? That child is guilty about something. Either way, I'm helping another human being. I... I think he's lonely, too. I can see why. Plus, I get a lot of free soup. (laughs) That's some split pea... Take it if you want it. With my colon problems, if I ate that, you, me, both of us would live to regret it. Since Ethan's been coming around, my kitchen has never been as clean. What is this? Oh, family photos that Ethan brought for me to look at. Is that why there's no coffee? Too busy looking at old pictures. Oh, what is with you and coffee today? You know I need my caffeine if I'm going to bowl all afternoon. Oh, whatever it takes to improve your lousy game. I broke a hundred last time, didn't I? You barely. Hmm. Huh. What? You think this is her? The dead mother? Well, the one with the big set of knockers is Cousin Louise. The moron in the propeller hat is stupid cousin Skippy. No, I mean this one. Oh, yes, yes, that's the mother. The dead mother. Yes, Moira, the dead mother. Pretty lady. That's what he said. He probably killed her. Moira! Moira gets an apple from the refrigerator and takes a bite. You could be next. Mark my words. Oh, stop being such a gloomy gust. These are good. Where'd you get them? Ethan brought them. (laughs) They could be poisoned. I was just kidding. I bought them. Sometimes you are so mean. What are friends for? (laughs) Come on, we'll be late. Can't wait to mop up the lanes with those uppity altar guild ladies from St. Cecilia's. I am right behind you. Lights fade. Humanities Tennessee is pleased to announce that the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga and the Lights Up Podcast are grant recipients to the Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan 
A program made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, approved by the U.S. Congress and signed into law on March 11. Because of this program, Humanities Tennessee is able to provide $941,454 to 91 organizations throughout the state. The purpose of SHARP grants is to support jobs in the humanities, keep humanities organizations open, and assist the field in its response to and recovery from the needs created or exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. These grants may focus on humanities projects or leveraging operational support stemming from the devastating impact of the coronavirus pandemic. They may also help organizations plan for the future and begin the long process of response and recovery to the pandemic. ETC and the Lights Up podcast would like to thank Humanities Tennessee and the National Endowment for the Humanities for this amazing opportunity. Hello and welcome back. I say it every time, but can you believe it? We're in season three of Lights Up. My name is Dana. I'm here with my favorite co-host on the planet, Christy. And we're so happy to have all of you here for a third season. And today we are joined by the playwright of Mothers and Other Strangers, F.J. Hartland. Hello, F.J. Hi, great to be here. We just got the pleasure of listening to Scott, Deb, and Kim bring F.J.'s piece to life. And I would love to just jump right in on this one, FJ. I had so much enjoyment listening to this. I was in the middle of reading it, texting Dana that I'm laughing about split pea soup. So if if you don't mind sharing with us, what inspired this, this piece and when did you write it? Well, my mother had early onset Alzheimer's disease and uh, she passed away about 13 years ago. But at, at the time I wrote this, I wrote several plays that dealt with dealing with mothers that had either dementia or Alzheimer's. And um, this, was, this was one of those pieces, but I didn't want to write the typical mom has Alzheimer's kind of play. I wanted to sort of take a different point of view with it. Yeah, as someone with, um, my mom has her mother had dementia before she passed and her father also had Alzheimer's. So that hits home. But something Christy and I both picked up on right away was not typical, great plot twist. There was humor. Um, so where in the process, like where did you decide, this is obviously something that's personal to you. Um, where did you decide to put these three in the mix the way that you did? I find as a writer, sometimes your first idea is not necessarily the best idea. So I like to have a couple ideas and try and force myself to think outside the box. And this play was a result of forcing myself to think outside the box. Um, I wrote another play where um, I, I was coming home from seeing my mother in the nursing home and she was bad and I was really missing her and I stopped at a drive-in, like a off the, just off the highway kind of restaurant. And I looked across the restaurant and there was a woman I would swear was my mother sitting there. And I'm sure she caught me staring at her and probably thought I was a crazy person. But I was actually debating, should I go over and say, hey, you look like my mother and I can't talk to my mother anymore. Could we have a conversation? But I, you know, 
cooler heads prevailed and I kept my mouth shut. But I, I wrote a couple things influenced by my mother's disease. And like I say, this one was me trying to work at it from outside the box. Yep. So how long have you been a playwright and what got you started writing plays? Well, it goes way back. Um, when I was 13, Santa Claus brought me a typewriter for Christmas. That's how far back this story goes. And uh, for some reason, I started writing plays. I don't know why. And I've been at it for more than years now. <laughs> But that's really when I started, and I, I really don't know why I chose to write plays. Uh, at one point early on in my life, I wanted to be an actor. And uh, when I went to college, they didn't have playwriting. I took short story class, and every one of my stories would come back with the same comment from the professor. The dialogue is the best part of this story. <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe I should just write stuff with dialogue. So. <laughs> Wow. So you kind of had a little bit of a theater bug, um, some acting inclination. Were you involved in theater um, in college tangentially or in high school or anything like that? Did you uh, did you perform? I actually started in junior high school in the drama club. And then uh, the man that taught drama asked me if I would write a play for the, it was junior high school at the time, for the junior high school presentation for the year. So I was like 14 when I had my first play produced. Granted, it was at a junior high school, but it was still my first play being produced. And then when I went to college, I, I majored in acting. And the professor who was in charge of the whole department said, let's go for coffee after class. And I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be, you know, something big. So we get our coffee and he looks across the table and he says, let's face some facts you're too short, you're too fat, you're too ugly, and you're too untalented to be an actor, maybe you should pursue something else. And that was devastating because that was my career goal <laughs> when I was 19 years old. But then it dawned on me, when you're the playwright, nobody cares if you're short or fat or <laughs> ugly. As long as the play is good, that's all that matters. So I started then to pursue, and my advisor, my new advisor in the English department, because I left the theater department right after that, um, encouraged me to go to graduate school to study playwriting, and that's what I did. One of the uh, themes Dana and I both picked up on is, um, well, the concept of a reliable narrator, and I got to read the play and then listen to it, and one of the things I told myself when I was listening to Scott's reading and he mentioned the doctor said it would help you if you would look at old photographs. I had a moment of, I wonder if the doctor told, you know, told Ethan it would help him to look at old photographs, just wondering what Ethan was battling. So is that is that a convention that you use frequently um, when you write your works? I always like there to be a twist because I grew up watching The Twilight Zone, the original black and white one. That's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I was, I'm retired as a college professor, but for several years I taught a class in the Twilight Zone. So I, um, it really was a big influence on me and I love a good story with a twist. So um, that's what I like about this particular play. Cause I think I kind of achieved a Twilight Zone twist at the end of the play. So uh, 
yeah, I, I really wasn't, I really wanted to make the audience, I wanted to fool the audience. Mm. So that opening, you know, it looks like your typical, oh, mom has Alzheimer's kind of play and kind of get everybody sort of to relax into that. That's what it's going to be. And then sort of pull the rug at the end. So. I think that's why Twilight Zone, the originals, I watch the marathon every New Year's Day. It's like a tradition I have for myself. And I don't really love the ones from the 80s. I much prefer the black and white original Rod Serling. Um, And I think I like them because, yes, they're like sci-fi, but they are grounded in reality, right? Mm -hmm. They were actually taking on topics of like racism and misogyny and like things like that veiled as these monsters. And like Christy said, we were like, oh, we don't really know who the reliable narrator is in this play um, because all of them were grounded in reality, right? The son caring for this um, mentally ill uh, mother and then the friend coming over and then you could have three different plays from each of these characters if it was from their perspective uh-huh. and it was all very grounded in reality because you know you have grace saying well i'm helping someone yeah. i'm offering something and also she's getting something in return she's like i get food my kitchen's clean <laughs> obviously filling a void you know and moira is there kind of the only person who sounds like she might be a little grounded in logic but then <laughs> But then I'm like, I don't know. She lets this thing go on and she's a friend. Do we fully trust her as well? (laughs) Um, And that is what I totally loved and I thought was so unique. Um, Can you walk us through, like, were there other versions of this? Did you ever lean into, like, giving an answer? Because I'm someone who I sometimes I get annoyed by a surprise or not having an answer and I have to create one, but this play is so satisfying because I can create my own and there are too many options. Did you ever <laughs> go through and like, what was the process with this particular plot? The plot never really changed in the, all the rewrites I did on it. It had the same structure, but I, expanded things like going into the photographs that they look at and being specific about what's in the photographs. And so I, I did kind of expand when I was at grad in grad school, we had a professor and he would say, you're the oddest playwright I've ever met. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, every other playwright I've had in all the years I've taught, I say, edit, edit, edit. You're the only one I say to, Please add more. Please add more. Please add more. <laughs> so Chrissy and I both were wondering, is that detail a shout out to someone, to you? Does there someone you know or you, do you love Split Peep Soup? Do you hate it? It was so latched in there. We were like, where does this come from? In general, I love soup, but I hate Split Pea. And for some reason, when I was in elementary school, they would serve split pea soup. And I'm like, you know, you're dealing with eight-year-olds here. We don't really eat split peas. <laughs> we'll eat chicken noodle every day if you want, but we're not eating <laughs> split pea. And I've never liked it. I, that's the. I'm, but others, I love soup. I'm a big soup person. You know, once a week, especially not the weather's cold, every Saturday I'll make soup so I have something to eat all week. 
but split pea is just uh, i'm i'm with her i don't i don't like it <laughs> so you you've mentioned now that you um started writing when you were a teenager you had your first play published 14 um you were redirected in undergraduate and then you went to a graduate writing program um for someone who started so young and was able to you know actually see their pieces up on on their feet and things like that how has your process developed you mentioned a little more that you tend to sketch and go on but um, we are highlighting playwrights here, so our, we love to have our listeners hear how you personally developed a process. I need to have two things in place before I can start to write. I need to know what do I want the audience to see first when the lights come up, and I need to know what is the last thing I want the audience to see when the lights go down. And if I don't have those two things, there's no point in even starting to write because I'm not one of those people that can just write and let it take me wherever it's going to take me. I'm, I'm very anal retentive. Uh, I need to know where we're going. So once I have those two things, I write my first draft just to see if I can get from point A to point B, mm. which is probably why my first drafts are so sketchy because the goal is just to see if I can get from that initial picture to that final picture. And I, I always compare it to my mother used to hang clothes on the line outside and um, you put up the line first and then you put the clothes on the line. So that's how I write the play. I put up the line, clothes line first and then I go back and hang the wet shirts and stuff and sheets on, on, on the line as I go. I don't think we've heard anybody with that process. That's so fascinating. And, and I have friends who write and they're like, oh, it's so exciting to sit down and just let the characters take me wherever they want to take me. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm a little bit more of that same vein, honestly. Like, I can buckle up for most things as long as I know. So what is the process of getting your work produced? What has that been like? And do you have any works that you've written that you're particularly proud of? When I was working full time and I was doing theater, so I taught all day in rehearsals at night. And I was lucky to get one one act to submit to the Pittsburgh New Works Festival every year. Like that was my major achievement if I got one one written. Now that I'm retired, I actually embarked on this project. I started on the 1st of June of 2021, and I committed to submitting a play to some opportunity every day for a year. Wow. So I did 365 wow. submissions. And I mean, some of them were publishers, some were contests, some were theaters that were just taking scripts. Um, and I, I met my one-year goal on May 31st this year. And then I decided that was a lot of work. <laughs> and so now I'm, I'm a little more picky and choosy about where I submit. And probably out of those 365, now some of them I'm still waiting to hear on and some of them I'll never hear from. But the, the no's far outweighed the yeses. I bet there weren't more than a dozen yeses in those 365. And I'm told that's a good percentage. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> but you forget when you only write one play a year and you submit one play a year, you forget that if you do 365, there's a lot of rejections that can, I literally went 10 weeks with a rejection every day for 10 weeks. 
It was like I didn't want to turn the computer on in the morning because I knew one was waiting for me at the top of my, you know, email. But I mean, if you're going to submit that much, that's the reality of, you know, you're going to get rejections. And I was doing a talk on playwriting the other day, and I said about, you know, 12 out of 365, that was a lot of work for nothing. And the woman running the seminar said, that's 12 plays you wouldn't have had done otherwise. Yeah. And that's one success a month out of a year, right? Like that's, that's better odds than I've experienced as an actor, <laughs> you know, and I've done some really great things that I'm very proud of. And I have some things on the horizon, but I mean, that's what happens when you, when you do a creative pursuit. I, I, I imagine it's different. You, you were teaching, right? So you're involved in theater every day. You're doing theater at night. And so that can, that's really, that's one thing I love about educational theaters. It really allows you to feel fulfilled mm -hmm. because you are involved and on such a schedule constantly. Yeah. And so moving away from that can be really difficult. Um, what, did you get to a place where you were able to come up with your own coping process for the rejection? I'm still not good at it, but a lesson I did learn from that year was it is so subjective and I have no control over it. I had a, a, a 10 minute play that, and they've since folded, but Northern Arizona playwriting something or other, they do this 10 minute festival and they chose my play and they came back and said, we would like to record that play to put on our website as an example of the best 10-minute play we've ever seen, which everything fell apart. They didn't do it. But this same play has been rejected other places. <laughs> and I'm like, how can it be the best example of a 10-minute play when 10 other theaters have turned it down? So it's just, it's the subjectivity of it. You just can't. I have no control over that. And I have to remind myself of that, that, you know, even a, even a play, I've had plays that have, you know, won a prize and then get turned down other places. So I just remind myself it is a subjective process. And I mean, a play I like, you may hate and vice versa. So. And that's something I do love about theater, you know, is like that we don't, and Christy and I talk about this often is like, it doesn't have to be for everyone all the time. And I, I think we love your play. It's so good. And it brought us such joy, but you know what? That doesn't, that doesn't increase or decrease FJ's value. Amen. I found it very delightful, but it's so true that that subjectivity until you come to your own piece about it and your own terms of it, it really can eat you alive. I don't know if it's the people pleasing side or the achiever side of us. I'm not sure what it is, but it can brutalize you. Just, I, I can appreciate that very much. My gosh. And then I, you submitted for 365 days. You were successful. You had a successful submission every month, let's say. <laughs> How many of these plays came from prompts? Like how much were you creating versus how much were you able to resubmit? Um, what, what was the breadth of work over the year? It, it would vary. Like sometimes I would have a play that 
was a little short of what they were looking for. And I thought, well, if I can expand it without making it look like padding, I'll, you know, do a rewrite on that. Um, there was one play. <laughs> I literally changed the ages of all the characters so it would qualify to me. <laughs> And then I was like, don't forget to go back and put them what they were supposed to be after you submitted. <laughs> when I you submitted it. again. Um, yeah, some, I mean... Like one year, the the prompt was it was a Chinese food contain takeout container, and I thought a long time till I, I come up with something that I thought no other playwright in the world is going to come up with this use for this container, and uh, and then it didn't didn't make the cut there, but then it got picked up to other places, you know. Uh, well, we and, have to ask what was the use, or if you don't want to give it away, you don't have. No, that's to. okay. In fact, this was the play that Arizona thought was the best Tim in a play they'd have ever seen. Um, there's a man in drag sitting at a dressing table, and there's an older woman behind him, and it turns out it's his mother. And whenever he faces the mirror, he's an adult, but when he turns around to face her, he's the boy version of himself. And so, as he's dressing, she pulls out this. Chinese food container, and she says, "I want you to have this." She says, "A little boy to give your wife," and he goes, "What if I don't get married?" She goes, "Well, then you can have it to wear." And he pulls out into necklace and, and earrings, and they talk about, you know, Dad always yelled at you. You have a perfectly good jewelry box. Why don't you keep your jewelry in the jewelry box? And she says, "Well, when a burglar breaks into your house, where's the first place they're going to look for your jewelry?" She said, no burglar is going to open the refrigerator and open what could be moldy mugu guy pan. So, I mean, I the, that one made my brain hurt trying to come up with how to use that prop in a different. I feel like based on the visual reaction that Dana and I had, I've, I've, I think we both would love that piece. Honestly, <laughs> we were both like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. If you want to read it, I'll send it to you. Please. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, first of all, and then I was thinking too, and Gary can edit this out because I'm going to get a little personal for him, but like a man in drag dealing with his mom, I was like, that's a Gary play. He needs to read that. Like, I was like, oh my God. Um, um, I want to say, I love your brain. Uh, it sounds like you tend to deal with... Um, family relationships and dynamics, but in a pretty unique way. Is that something that you seek to write often? The, the play I've had the most success with is called Postcards from a Dead Dog. And it's about a mother and a son. And he tells the story about when he was a boy, his parents had a dog and the dog died and they didn't want to tell him the dog was dead. So the mother said the dog was on vacation. But the little boy doesn't believe it. So the mother starts sending these postcards from the dog and they're like from the Grand Canyon and stuff, you know. And then she starts to slip in information, family stuff, you know. And then he starts to send them back, you know, from the dog to her, you know, and stuff like, oh, the Grand Canyon is beautiful. And it's not a complete failure if your son doesn't pass algebra this semester. You know, <laughs> so that's how they communicate for the rest of their lives. They send these postcards that are presumably from a dog on vacation. <laughs> it sounds like it's about what you want to say, what the idea is, sustainability, um, which is something we need in so many areas of our lives these days. Um, do you 
have full-length plays? Do you like writing full-length plays? Have you ever dabbled in musicals? We talked to a bunch of different playwrights who sometimes go all over the place or sometimes like to stick in a lane. I, I do have full-length plays. Um, the last one I finished, I got word... I forget the initials. It's like the American Community Theater Association, their contest that I made the first cut with this full-length play. So I do have some full-length plays. Um, I have never sat down to write a musical, but many years ago, probably in the 80s, early 90s, there was a composer in New York that saw a play of mine and wanted to make it into a musical, and he did. And it did kick around for a while, um, but never, you know, took off. But it had a couple productions, and he, he did a beautiful job of taking what was on the page and making it into a musical. Like he really didn't alter anything or make any major changes. He understood the characters. He wrote beautiful songs for them. And that was an interesting experience to see your work transformed by somebody else into a new, new form. I wish I were more musical because I do love musicals, but I'd never actually written one, but I, I do try to vary. And the way the contests are, I mean, I have um, on the hard drive, if there's a one minute contest, I got a one minute play. If there's a five minute contest, I got a five minute play. I have a slew of 10 minute plays, um, 25, 30, and then up to full length. My full lengths are more like, like a 90 minute, no intermission kind of full length play, which is more the style now than. I was going to say those sell very well, especially now, like yeah. to be a little more commercial you know, it's a lot easier to produce for a myriad of reasons. Yeah. Um, and I will say, I have not read a lot of your work, obviously, but based on our chat, I could see why you would be a great choice to write the book of a musical because um, you are about brevity and getting to the heart of the matter and um, you sketch things out. And I think one of the things that can be really challenging about book writing in a musical is you have to only give so much before you can go into the song, right? Because right. the song is going to be the one that the thing um, that's the full emotive detail, inner life, whatever. And so I think that's why sometimes, you know, book writing is is not credited in as much uh, in a musical as being such a s important and specific skill because they can get kind of hokey. They can get kind of horny, corny. They can get kind of corny. Definitely not. Well, some of them could get horny. I don't know. It depends on the musical, I guess. Um, <laughs> leave that one in for laughs. It's scary. Um, you no, know, it, you're, you're right. And with, with writing sketchy like I do, because the song is meant to move the show on, it's not meant to stop the show so we can sing a song now. And so it is, you know, if I do have a gap where there should be more seen, a song could take the place of what. Yeah. What so maybe there. you just need to hook up with a really great <laughs> and we get an FJ special musical. Like I would be down for that. I'm just saying I'm hearing all of your ideas. I'm like, I want to see, I want to see a musical based on one of your plays. I want you to write the book for a musical. Well, of full length plays to me, I'm again, going back to that idea of, you know, what I think can be sustained with an audience. 
I get so few ideas that are full-length ideas, whereas 10-minute ideas, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Those come really quickly. But trying to come up with something that's going to last, you know, 90 minutes or 120 minutes with an intermission or whatever is really difficult for me. I don't get many large, big ideas like that. I take my first play in, the you know, for first graduate school playwriting class. And the first page is the description of the set. And the teacher, David Ball, says, reads it and he goes, Oh, you I'm had David Ball. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm confused. I said, about what? He goes, I thought you were here to study playwriting. And I said, I am. And he said, then stop designing the goddamn set. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. And for our listeners who don't know, I recognize David because he wrote backwards and forwards, forwards. right? Yes. Yes. Um, And which is a pretty famous standard um, text, I want to say, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's not a textbook. It's not a huge hardcover, but um, that is used for playwriting and script analysis. And I, we did that in, definitely I used that in my graduate school and I think we even had an undergrad. So what was it like learning from, from some of the, you are at Carnegie Mellon. So you had access to a lot of great professors, I'm sure. David was very, his degrees in like electrical engineering and (laughs) He had a very scientific approach to writing a play. Mm-hmm. And there was actually a formula. On it. <laughs> like, you know, character plus conflict equals action. I was all this, all this stuff like that. And uh, what's funny was the whole time I was there, I never thought he liked me very much. But we've we've stayed in touch. And I sent him, I'm trying to think which play of one it was I recently sent him. And he wrote back and he said, the loveliest thing, he said, I'm much too old and you're much too old for me to say this, but I am proud of you. Um, but yeah, this is this has been so lovely. We do um, ask all of our playwrights the same three questions at the very end, just a little kind of, it's our send off. Um, and before we do that, we would love to give you the opportunity to... Um, kind of let your, uh, we'd love to give you the opportunity to let our listeners know where they can connect with you, whether that's on social media, a website, new play exchange, any um, contact information you want to share, we will give the floor to you. Uh, I am on the new play exchange, FJ Hartland, F period, J period, H-A-R-T-L-A-N-D. Um, if you want to email me, it's FJ Hartland, lowercase, no punctuation at hotmail. Dot com. So first question, do you have a word that maybe you consider a favorite word or maybe it's just a word that delights you? Do you have a word that would fit in that category right now? Um, I still teach part-time as an adjunct since my retirement. And the other day we were talking about onomatopoeia. So I love the word onomatopoeia. I think it's just a fun word to say. <laughs> And spell. It's also a fun one to look at. Yep. And look at spell. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I think I said to them, I'm going to say it three times because I love to say this word so much. <laughs> well, a word like onomatopoeia should sound 
fun and be fun to say. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not really fulfilling its purpose in life. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so as Christy said, we don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be favorite, but um, do you have a place or a location that you love or adore or feel nostalgic towards? I love to be at the ocean. Um, I had a, well, four years ago, I, I lost my foot. I had to have it amputated. And I've not been able to go to the ocean since then. And I really miss it because it really, it rejuvenates my soul and my creativity. And I, I mean, I don't go in the water. I'm terrified of the vastness of the ocean. But I could sit and look at that water all day <laughs> from morning to night. So, yeah, I haven't been. I used to always go to Cape May, New Jersey. Mm. And um, the last time I was there, I think, was 2017. So it's been a while, and I, I miss, I would I would love just to spend a week sitting on a porch looking at the waves. Mm. I hope that can happen for you soon. I hope so. It's it's been a it's been a challenge. <laughs> All right, final question. Do you have an item that you would consider a keepsake or something particularly precious to you? Or if the house was burning down, it's one of the things you'd want to grab? Well, that's a good question. And that's a stall to think for an answer technique, you know that? Stall <laughs> Which is a different, instead of saying, um, you're gonna... you just repeat the question back. <laughs> and it makes the interviewer feel smart. It's great. It hits <laughs> I have a photograph near my back door of my father. And it was taken right before he married my mother. My dad was a twin. He had a twin sister. And she was terrified that once he got married, she would never see him again. I don't know why they live in the same damn town. But she forced him to go to the, the there was one major photography studio in the 50s in Johnstown. And she made him go and have this picture taken. And he looks so young and he is so handsome and it's just a, a wonderful picture of him. And I hung it near my back door because he had this habit of, we never left the house that he didn't watch us go. Like if we were walking to school, he would stand at the window and watch us walk down the street. Then he would wait at the window and watch us come up the street. And then as we got older, and you were driving away, he would stand at the window and watch to make sure you got, you know, out of the driveway okay and stuff. Yeah. And when I was in my 20s, I was very like, Dad, I'm yeah. a grown-up. I don't need you to make sure I get out of the driveway, okay? So please stop doing that. So the next time I came home, I'm pulling out of the driveway, and he's, he's not there. I'm like, way to go, Dad, you know. Then about three times later, as I'm leaving, the third time, I notice the curtain moves just a little tiny bit. He'd been there all the time, but he wanted me to think, you know, that I got him to stop him watching. 
I know. I was going to say, I thought we were going to get through with no tears. <laughs> Gary was like counting down because I was like, oh, and then when you did the double surprise of the curtain and he actually never left, I was like, oh my God. I was like, okay, we've laughed and we've cried. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> we are complete now. We've done the circle. <laughs> yes. Fulfilled it. Oh my God. No, that was the most perfect answer. The Ensemble Theater Chattanooga and the Lights Up podcast were one of 11 organizations across the Chattanooga Valley to receive grant funding through the Sustaining the Humanities Through the American Rescue Plan. As part of this podcast, for each episode, we would like to highlight one of the other organizations receiving a sharp grant. The Houston Museum of Decorative Arts respects, values, and celebrates the unique attributes, characteristics, and perspectives that make each person who they are. Visitors to the Houston Museum are consistently struck by the quality of Anna Houston's collection. She amassed very rare examples of cut glass, satin glass, peach blow pitchers and crues, Burmese glass objects, cameo glass, and cranberry glass. Manufacturers represented in the collection include Steuben, Tiffany, Durand, Lotz, and Fenton. Though art glass was her specialty, Anna purchased early American antique furniture too. Early American furniture and even more rare Tennessee pieces of furniture, such as sugar chests, corner cupboards, and tables, are displayed. The collection also includes Anna's chairs and sideboards, including a hickory nanny cradle dating to 1810. Music boxes, scrimshaw, coverlets, and quilts, and antique German steins help round out a collection that represents many facets of Victorian life. Anna Safley was born in Evening Shade, Arkansas in 1876 and died in Chattanooga in 1951. Married and divorced at least nine times, Anna came to Chattanooga with her second husband and she quickly became a fixture in town as a businesswoman. She was a shrewd bargainer and she began her antiques business by making purchases from local farmers, often carrying furniture home on her back. Many of her purchases were made during the Great Depression. Though she had a limited education, Anna Houston became a noted expert on antiques. Throughout her life, she treasured the collections more than her personal well-being. In the 1930s, she single-handedly built a barn-like structure where she housed her collection, her fox terrier Sonny, and herself until her death in 1951. With the help of her attorney, Blaine Buchanan, she organized the museum before her death and left her estate to 100 museum trustees to build a museum and provide future generations with an appreciation of art class, furniture, and antiques. For more information on the Houston Museum of Decorative Arts, please visit them on the website at www.thehoustonmuseum.org. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theatre company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. 
The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ATC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast.